Religiosanity. Episode. Yes, welcome to the 100th episode of Religiosanity. I'm Peter Rinaldi. I'm Andrew Stahlik. And we have been doing this podcast for three years now. And the official log line of this podcast is talking about religion and keeping our sanity. Knowledge and humor are our best defenses against bigotry. And we've been doing this for three years. And our first episode was 90 years of Ugarit. And then we did 16 more episodes on the ancient city of Ugarit, which, which are our more, most famous episodes, our most popular episodes. And just to, just to give you a, a little bit of a couple of the very interesting episodes we've done so you can, I know you've heard them all, but just so you can go back, <laughs> you can go back and dip into some of them. Episode four was called, Did Yahweh Have a Wife? Question mark, of course. Uh, episode 16, we, we did a seven-part series, starting with episode 16, called Sane Christmas. Seven parts. Wow. Our most popular episode, I don't even know if you know this, is called Angels Part 2. Now, if you know Pastor Andrew, the idea of him talking about angels should be very interesting to you, because this is not going to be just somebody talking about angels. So this is a theologian talking about angels. Uh, episode 75, the subliminal sadism of Amy Coney Barrett. Does that? <laughs> we had a wow from the audience there. Uh, and uh, episode 91, robot sermon. Mm -hmm. Scary, scary. Uh, today is going to be very different. We want to do something very special for this episode. So we wanted and this has never been done before in this church, we wanted to let the people ask Pastor Andrew anything about the Bible or ancient times. So I'm giving priority to the audience. If the audience has a question, just raise your hand. I will go to you. And, if we, and then the second priority will be the people on the chat. Uh, but I have a bunch of questions, anonymous questions that people have written in. Uh, uh, texted to different people here, and some people have written down questions here. So those we'll try and get to. And if he's going on too long, we will have, and let's, let's show everyone this, uh, Nadim, we're going to have a timer. There's a timer. If, <laughs> if he's going on too it's long, not counting. you can start. It's good. <laughs> you can just start, start, it, start it counting just to show what will happen and then bring it back. There we go. Very, very stressful. Uh, I, I'm prepared. <laughs> I'm prepared, Peter. Okay, bring it, yeah, good. Uh, okay, so. Just look. <laughs> does anybody in the audience have a question? Yes, we have a hand up. I'm going right into the audience with Nora. Question for Pastor Andrew. I'm wondering if there is any scripture that the folks who just um, disallowed women to be pastors relied on. Mm -hmm. um, that's uh, a little tricky question. Uh, 
um, reacting to what was happening just last uh, week uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, but Southern Baptists are actually not alone uh, in that respect. There are many other uh, uh, denominations, uh, more fundamentalistic, evangelical, who don't ordain uh, women. Uh, and one of those is also called Presbyterian, and it's PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, uh, for instance, uh, and, and many others, uh, don't get me wrong. And uh, you ask about a scripture which might justify that. Yes, there is a scripture, like there is a scripture for almost anything, because Bible is a pretty thick book, and in that book you can find almost anything you want to find there. And uh, there is, an, uh, of course, relatively famous quotation uh, from the first Corinthians, uh, I think it's chapter 14, where Apostle Paul is writing that he orders women in the congregation to be silent. And if they want to ask anything, let them ask at home their husbands. Uh, but there is a problem with this text, and I did, didn't we do some episode about it, or maybe it Sounds is on fine. our YouTube or somewhere, because that is a very, or maybe a sermon uh, some time ago I did. Uh, that, that is a very interesting thing. So first of all, uh, Corinthians is a genuine Pauline letter. It is a letter written by Paul. It might be a collage of several letters, but here it is written within the text which is genuinely Pauline, like coming from Apostle Paul. But firstly, it is uh, kind of standing against... Start the timer. <laughs> okay. Uh, it is uh, going against his, uh, uh, his theology because Apostle Paul is known to have women uh, collaborators and, and even allowing them to speak and, and leaders of the church and so on. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that there, are, there is a textual serious concerns about it. So not only content and uh, theology uh, going against him, but uh, also when you look into oldest manuscripts, these two verses are kind of sticking out. There are some manuscripts where you have, um, where you have these two verses kind of being appended at the end of the chapter, for instance. Mm -hmm. And that is an indication to theologians that it is an, a later kind of insertion. Uh, of from the later tradition being inserted into Pauline. And when you follow and you take these two verses out, that train of thought is flowing more smoothly. So there was some relatively early insertion happening in a church where they wanted to sideline women and they put it there. I would say that it happened somewhere during the second century. 
uh, of course, our oldest versions are going much later. So, uh, oldest uh, manuscripts we have, uh, you, you know. So, uh, th this is the situation with it. So, there is, but it is highly problematic. Not most likely Pauline, not uh, for directly from his hand, and, and so on. Uh, it is patriarchal book at the same time. So, fine, I'm done. Does anybody think that me calling for the timer was my version of sidelining women? Okay. <laughs> John has this. <laughs> John has, I won't do that next time. Do you believe in Jesus, or do you believe when he became Jesus Christ that it was still the same Jesus? Oh, that's a very, very interesting theological question. Thank you, thank you. So, the, the, first of all, here we have a distinction between Jesus and Jesus Christ. Uh, and uh, whether I believe in Jesus or whether I believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, so, to, to explain it a little bit, to unpack that. So, Jesus is an historical figure. I have no doubt about it, and in that respect, I believe in existence and ministry of Jesus. Uh, so that much I can tell you. The, the other thing is that Jesus Christ, Christ is a Greek word for uh, Hebrew or translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, and it's a title. So Jesus who was or is Messiah, uh, would be the Jesus Christ. And yes, I, I do believe that Jesus is the one who was anointed, that's the translation of Messiah or Christ, the one who is anointed. It means and put aside as a special uh, person of God. And, and in that respect, again, I absolutely believe in Jesus and Jesus as showing us uh, the divine will for us and for the world. And uh, I, I don't know whether I'm answering your question. Uh, the reason I asked the question because when Constantine converted to Christianity, then all of a sudden he became Jesus Christ. It seemed at that time of history when Jesus became Jesus Christ and became very political, the church. Um, yes, uh, here- Start the timer. John is uh, kind of pointing another uh, interesting development that uh, the, the influence of political power over the Christianity. Uh, I think that the title of Christ appeared even earlier, but became kind of uh, dominant and being abused uh, for political reasons. And, you know, I translated Messiah uh, as, as the one anointed. It almost means like coronated, you know, and so for the political powers like Constantine and after him other Roman emperors, uh, it was very, very interesting to, to have Christ who is the head of the world, and then they are their uh, 
representatives. They are those uh, anointed human beings who are anointed to uh, take care of the world uh, on behalf of Christ. And that is building that hierarchy. Of course, uh, any kind of political power likes to have that kind of clear hierarchy. And, and emperors, of course, loved the religion. It, uh, and for Constantine and after them, Christianity became a unifying factor again of the Roman Empire uh, and uh, was uh, highly valued for that. You know, J Julian the Apostate tried to rebel against it in two generations, uh, but uh, that went nowhere. And from that moment on, uh, Christianity was the official religion of, uh, of Roman Empire and later Europe and so on and so forth. And only most recently we started to live in post-Constantine period. Post-Constantine period is where the religion is not uh, enforced. And America has something to say about it that makes it uh, interesting. Uh, I would say from the Enlightenment to some degree, uh, that would be the beginning of that. Uh, and. Uh, uh, with, with growing secularization where religion is or Christianity is not any longer uh, like a required uh, part of your curriculum or your, uh, uh, your CV and, and so on. And uh, it's, it's becoming less cachet. Mm -hmm. enough. And, and American insistence of separation of uh, the religion and state, for instance, played a, another uh, instrumental role here, I think, so, yeah. Okay, so is there, are there any other questions from the audience at this time? There may be, at any time, you can raise your hand when I'm between questions if you think of one. Let's go to an anonymous question, one of our many anonymous questions. When someone points to a few scripture verses to support their fundamentalist view of homosexual relationships being wrong, what verses can I point to to offer a challenge to this view? <laughs> my, my, my answer here will be don't point any, uh, to any verses. Oh, of course, there could be some, but uh, I would never do that because that's, uh, you are accepting that kind of premise and abuse of the Bible and, and uh, the, because that is abuse. You, you know, this uh, tearing the passages out of context to use them to, you, you know, like uh, uh, bash with the Bible, I call it. You know, take a Bible and beat people with a Bible overhead uh, like that. So uh, just quoting back, uh, a verse will not, uh, is, is disrespecting the Bible. First of all, might not persuade those people anyhow. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the other thing is you are accepting their plane upon which we are talking. That's a second. And third, it is an abuse of Bible. That is, I would say, even worse. <laughs> kind of, uh, because then it leads into this kind of, it is showing misunderstanding of what Bible really is. Mm. That Bible is not a collection of uh, 
verses which you then mechanically apply to your life or something like that. So, uh, and and I, I would take that particular biblical passage they are quoting at me and I can deconstruct almost all of them or to show that, that it's not what they are talking about. It is not, uh, uh, you know, putting down um, homosexual couples or same gender couples or whichever way you want to, uh, uh, they are presenting it, you know, and whichever way, what language you use uh, there. So that, that's one thing, you know, and then there are alternative texts, of course, uh, which can show that, uh, God's heart is not so narrow-minded. But again, uh, those are not like one or two verses, uh, and uh, you need to accept certain premise of uh, understanding the broader context of biblical passage. One beautiful example is where Jesus is healing a centurion boy. Uh, being asked to heal a Roman centurion uh, where the, where the uh, Jewish authorities are actually working as go-between and they are coming to Jesus and asking, please, can you do something for this guy? He did a lot of good things for our community. And, and Jesus... Uh, goes and that direction, but he is being stopped by the centurion, sending either messengers or talking directly, and you know, you don't need to come, just give a a command, and my servant will be healed, and he is healed. Why am I saying uh, that this is a same-gender relationship, or potential same-gender relationship? Uh, If you compare all the biblical passages where someone is asking for healing of someone else, not your, that person itself. It's always within the family. It's always the close uh, family members. And so here it shows, uh, I would claim, a close relationship uh, of uh, that centurion and his servant. Maybe hinting or uh, outlying uh, some kind of an, what we would call homosexual relationship. Might not, I don't know, you, you know, but th- this is one of the examples. You, you know, there are some other in the Hebrew Bible, Jonathan and David, for instance, and dirge of David over Jonathan. I preached about it. I don't know whether there are recordings of it. Uh, that there is a beautiful passage, uh, which is, used by fundamentalists quite often for marriage, uh, for weddings. Uh, uh, and I preached about it, I think, a year ago, uh, about a uh, cord of th- three, uh, three prongs, you know, made of three, uh, three threads uh, together. And, and when you really do the exegesis, you will re- recognize that this is being lifted from the classical Homeric reference where it describes same gender relationship. Uh, and uh, uh, military in that case, uh, but uh, in, uh, uh, between two soldiers. Uh, 
And uh, so uh, in, in Ecclesiastes, that is then, can be easily applied to same-gender relationship as well. Why not? Uh, we have more members of the audience. Does anybody in the audience have a question for Pastor Andrew? I'm giving priority to the audience. Yes, I knew it. What does it mean to deconstruct the Bible? What does it mean to deconstruct the Bible? We need, uh, Nadine, be on, uh, be on standby for the two minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not. Not yet. Uh, give me some. Uh, deconstruction means uh, taking apart and try with with the attempt to try to understand what are the underlying reasons something was put together in in a way it was. Uh, I would personally call it more exegesis or uh, the trying to really understand the, 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 the message behind the text. Uh, and uh, are you reacting when I said that I would take those biblical passages and deconstruct them or something like that? Yes, yeah. Um, you, you know, like uh, I, I will be doing it this, this very Sunday. Uh, deconstructing one of those uh, or demythologizing or like the de-falsifying, let me put it that way, uh, because there are some passages which are really used, again, uh, to take the Bible and beat people over their heads uh, or over their hearts, frankly, uh, and over their souls. Uh, and I would say with a wrong way. Uh, like I did with that uh, women who should be silent in the, in, in the congregation. You know, first of all, it's a very short passage. It is not Pauline. It was added later. It is in contradiction with other Pauline letters and, and Jesus' own life. So that is one of the ways uh, that, you, you know, if you take from the context certain passage, then you can prove almost anything. And in a similar way, like we were talking about homosexuality, you know, there are famous passages, say from Romans uh, against homosexuality uh, at the beginning, you know, uh, like uh, putting down all those uh, pagan Romans who, who are just acting this badly. Uh, and, and it's, there is a, it's, it's a list of vices. And in the list of vices, it, it, and there were list of virtues also. It was a rhetorical figure in, in Hellenistic time. Do you follow me? You, you know. Uh, State and, the timer. Uh, <laughs> and and it's, 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 it's a rhetorical figure which... Uh, which was employed by rhetoricians, by public speakers. And it was the way to establish a relationship with the audience. And uh, so uh, this list of vices or list of virtues is not necessarily telling us what was the core belief and thinking of Apostle Paul or the author, for that matter. It is their way of showing, I know what you want to hear. 
kind of, you know, or gaining the attention of audience. And definitely it's not a tool to be used for building up moral theology, for instance. So this is what I mean by deconstructing, you know. And, and of course, when, when I do this, uh, I, I did that for my uh, Czech church uh, recently, when they approved the blessing of same gender unions and all the fundamentalists were up in arms and they started to quote exactly this passage from Romans. And I said, wait a moment, wait a moment. And, and you know, they, they don't have any answer, but they start to use, abuse me, you know, or use slur words and, and so on. Uh, because there, there, there is no argument against it when you show that, you know, the, the, this is a genre. There is a long list, Paul, this is not the only place in Pauline letters where he is using that. He, and he is using homosexuality in one of those. So, you know, that's, that, that's the way I would answer. We have to go to some of these questions on YouTube. Uh, Susan Mathias asks, how would you advise people to read the Bible? as the word of God, as a dialectic, sorry, as a didactic, <laughs> yet beautiful set of myths meant to guide us along our journey, or as an essential part of the Western literary canon. And Start the timer. <laughs> yes, uh, so... I, I think that I, I would not put it either or. Why not to have it as all of those things together? I, I, I think that... You, you, How does the audience feel about that? Is that a cop-out? Okay. We have a mixture, a mixture from the audience here. I keep going. I'm sorry. Yeah. You, yeah. Your timer's not even started yet. Yes. No, uh, I, 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 I approve all of those things. You know, I, I think it is a very, very important uh, text of our uh, civilization, without doubt. Uh, I think that it is a uh, collection of stories which are informing our lives very deeply. And it is also, in a mysterious way, a recording of the experiences and relationships our ancestors had with what I would call divine. And therefore, it is in some way a recording of God's word. It's different than fundamentalists would say because they very often see it as a dictate, you know, dictation or uh, if, if not directly writing of the uh, God, God self, but you know, using prophets or apostles to, to pen down for God what God is dictating them. That, that's not the case, I believe it. Uh, but uh, at the same time, kind of in a more mysterious way, it is deeper within that text are hidden experiences of many generations, Hebrew and Christian, uh, with with divine and trying to preserve it with many cock-ups and problems and, and so on. 
influenced by their vocabulary, by their worldview, and so on, but very deep insights. And my personal experience is looking deeper is usually more interesting. We have no more time. Okay. Circuit Keepers asks, what do you think Jesus meant by look at the birds of the air for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns yet your heavenly father feeds them Matthew 6 26 mm -hmm. yeah so yeah the question is what do you think Jesus meant by that oh uh, I, I think that uh, th th this is very interesting. Uh, it is being described as a part of uh, where the Christianity is closest to uh, cynicism, to that movement of cynics, you know, who were living like Diogenes in a, I, I never know how to pronounce it in, in English, so my apology, that, that philo Greek philosopher who was living in a barrel from the wine on a street and was provoking uh, his contemporaries by just living on the street and uh, being an excellent philosopher and showing the emptiness of many of our human constructs through that and being called cynic from the name uh, kynos, which is a dog. So living with dogs and, and bringing that kind of challenge to, to our high culture. And, and here you have an example of that. You, you know, and there are some signs of that being an, kind of part of the early Christianity and you know, connected to, to Jesus. Jesus was traveling like some kind of an... Uh, pilgrim philosopher through the Galilee and Judea uh, with a bunch of disciples around him and, and living uh, of the free donations, almost like some Buddhist monks these days, you know, who I, I met some of them in Hawaii. I, I never went anywhere else, <laughs> you know, there are living kind of examples of that and, and living from donations of good people around and sometimes sleeping under the houses because they are on stilts kind of, you know, so that they are not in the rain and, and, you know, walking with the dogs which join them, you know, and here you have a modern version of a cynic. Uh, and uh, it's different from what we normally call a cynic, of course. I, I hope that that is clear, you know, that, uh, yeah. I'm going to go to another anonymous question, unless there is a question, another question from the audience. No. This is a question from Susan. Yeah. In last Sunday's sermon, you positioned the, the priority bestowed upon second sons like Isaac and Jacob as an example of God's sympathy toward the less advantaged. Mm -hmm. How would you interpret the parable of the prodigal son in the gospel according to Luke? And do you think the parable is original with Luke 
or a story dating back to ancient times? Whew. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I think that there is a clear uh, storyline, you know, or tendency to lift up those who are like second in a row or uh, in, in the Hebrew Bible and in, uh, in the New Testament. And yes, prodigal son is a classical example of that because prodigal son is the second and is loved in the same way like the first one even though he made a mistake, you know. And we will be talking about it very soon in, in, uh, in upcoming sermons because it is a genuinely pure Lucan passage. It's not preserved in other uh, Gospels. And this summer we will be concentrating on, on Luke uh, or on those uh, only Luke uh, passages. Uh, but... Uh, there, there are other similar cognate stories about two sons, uh, one who says, uh, who father sends to work on a field, <laughs> and one says, oh yes, I will go, and does not go. And the other one uh, disgraces his father by rebellion, saying, I'm not going, and then he goes. And that's another parallel parable. And we have several other stories where they are being present, which are being presented like an option between two possibilities. Uh, so it, it's almost like a folkloristic device, I would say. Uh, what makes it uh, in, in Luke interesting is that just looking at it, it, it was definitely uh, like heavily reworked by Luke to lift up certain theological and uh, spiritual and psychological themes here. Timer. Yeah, that's it. I'm done. Oh, all right. I can't do the time. We, we have a question from the audience. Could you explain when the Holy Spirit came down and all those people were speaking foreign languages and understood each other? Timer. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, I think that, uh, again, this is part of, uh, it's, it's in Acts, of course, and it is a device of uh, evangelist Luke. Okay, Luke is trying to subdivide what happened on Easter event after crucifixion, what we normally call like resurrection. And he is dividing it into uh, along the timeline. We talked about it in the Bible class. Uh, so you, in, it's strictly resurrection then it is ascension, and then it is gift of Holy Spirit. But originally, all these aspects were actually a way of talking about what happened on Easter. It was transformative uh, event of a great 
importance for those present. Sometimes they were saying it meant that Jesus is lifted to the level of God. That's the ascension. Sometimes they were saying we were filled with the Holy Spirit. And that was their way of talking about it. And sometimes they were talking about resurrection from the dead. Uh, and Luke had that gift of dividing it into individual uh, events and creating Christian calendar, by the way. You know, and allowing us to every year kind of gain some insight and order in those uh, things. So that was, uh, I would blame almost predominantly Lucan tradition. And I would need more time because you can we give him just... more time. Give him another two minutes. Uh, so that is uh, that is uh, that event itself. It's almost like a legendarizing or mythologizing some uh, events, like narrating them as a story, even though it is more like a theological concept. That's what myth is. Myth is trying to put into a story some kind of either philosophical or religious concept. And so they are putting this uh, into a story. And as such, then, we can kind of like, just understand it or exegete that or deconstruct that somehow. So they are talking different languages and they are understanding each other. And for me, that'll be like a message you can understand. If there is Holy Spirit or if there is a will, people can understand each other. It's, it's as simple as that. You know, it's, 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 in the end, here it is like a gift of God. So with a gift given to us, we can understand each other regardless what our languages are or what our backgrounds are and so on. If there is uh, the presence of this divine love, I would almost say, you know, then people understand each other. But if that is absent, no matter what you do, even if you have imperfect interpreters and translators and uh, it, it leads to zilch, nowhere. And so that'll be my demythologizing of this story. Uh, yeah, and then there is all this uh, glossolalia and all these other things, you, you know, pu pu pulling in and, and, and we are already in zero, 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 so, yeah. There are a lot of interesting questions coming in, including people are emailing me questions. I want to try and get to a lot of these, but do you guys think I'm being too hard on him with this timer, or should I constantly be doing the timer? Can we have a vote? Oh, wait, I, I'm, I'm getting a thumbs up. Okay, no, timer is working. No, I'm fine with the timer, because it forces <laughs> me to be more uh, concise. Right. But I'm going to go to the audience. Anybody else before I go to these questions? Okay. Huh? Okay. <laughs> Use the timer. Yeah. Here is a very interesting question. We could start the timer as soon as I'm done with this question. An anonymous question. Uh, Jesus spoke about fruit of the poison tree. With so many issues in our history, with every one of the organized at one point or another being involved in torture, 
murder, child abuse, etc. Should Jesus' warning be completely ignored? Uh, that is the question. Timer. No, question about the corrupted religion. Am I right? Yeah, I guess the poison tree, right? Yeah. I, I don't know whether Jesus spoke about it. Uh, maybe I, I'm uh, here Did you drawing, speak about dr the drawing blank on it. Uh, and, and I generally think that I, I know relatively a lot about uh, Bible. But no, uh, the, but it is a real problem. You know, religion is an... It's, it's a dangerous thing. Uh, and and that is in, in that respect, I am truly, I, I was brought up by Barthian theologians. Karl Barth uh, uh, was a Swiss theologian. Of to some degree or to modern people, it might sound conservative, many of his ideas and so on. But he had a very interesting insight which goes all the way to reformation. And that is that there is a distinction between an, uh, faith as a gift from God and religion as our way of dealing with that faith. And unfortunately, uh, that religion can also get completely detached from that faith as Very a gift. Interesting. It can hypertrophy, become independent, its own thing, or can be filled with other agendas political, ideological, we see it. Uh, I think that America will be a marvelous study material for that, where uh, religion is being completely abused for, uh, for non-religious reasons, for ideological and political reasons. And, and in that situation, it, it has many good tendencies or bad tendencies uh, to, to, to become a poison. You know, religion on itself is just a phenomenon. Human. Human response to encounter with divine, with God. And it's, it, it can be highly problematic, like anything human can be problematic. We must move on. Yeah. Anyone? No. Going. Another anonymous question. I used to easily accept the idea that Christ died for my sins, but the more I think about it, I have an increasingly difficult time relating to this idea. It's hard to understand why someone needed to die for me. Is this really a necessary component of Christian faith? And if so, can you explain it in modern terms? Start the timer. <laughs> Um, welcome to the club, would be my answer. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, this, this is, uh, again, uh, I'll kind of unpack that, or uh, uh, this is built upon uh, what we had uh, some uh, earlier podcasts about, uh, and it's called the substitutionary atonement, uh, or... Uh, punitive substitutionary atonement, or there are different terms for it. And uh, that is that Jesus have to die for because of our sins, 
so that we would be saved. Uh, that is uh, predominantly scholastic medieval theology. You can find some traces leading towards that in the New Testament, but not pronounced like this, and especially when presented the way uh, it was presented. Uh, it is the highly dangerous teaching because it presents God as a um, bloodthirsty uh, monster which is uh, placated and satisfied only by a blood of a victim. And that is not how I see God, and I don't think that that is how God is. And uh, it more reflects uh, on medieval uh, culture and political culture than on, uh, on, on our way. Uh, highly surprising for me is that this is such a dominant uh, theme in, among the evangelicals because it originated in a medieval, uh, medieval Catholicism. So, you know, you tell me why. But why do, why, do, well, why do you think, well, we are already out of time, but why do you think that they latched onto that? Is there something about the idea that, I mean, is there something about that that, that feels scary? Is that, is that why? Meaning like um, a damnation kind of thing, like this person died for you. Or this entity, God, God died for you. You have to uh, uh, repent. I mean, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. I, 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 I don't know. I, I think that there is a problem that there, I, I, I think that there, there, there is a serious psychological problem of people who are teaching it and who are uh, insisting on it. Uh, I think that they have, uh, they have an complicated, if not completely broken relationship with their fathers. Uh, and uh, their entire view of the world is a, a zero-sum game. That's the other thing. You know, life is not zero-sum game. Uh, the, uh, there are certain aspects of that, uh, of course, in biology and uh, elsewhere. Uh, but generally, if you take it holistically or the entire relationship within ecosystems and so on. It is not a zero-sum game. And uh, because what is a refuse of one organism can very easily be a sustenance for another organism and so on and so forth. So that is uh, here I'm going kind of almost uh, towards the biology and the regular sciences. But uh, that is to just show that the world does not operate in that zero-sum game. And I, I feel it, I, I think that it is offensive to see uh, faith or see in faith God as an arbiter or creator of the world as a zero-sum game, you know, or, or as this eat or be eaten kind of world. That is not, uh, and, and it's, it's completely damaging and destructive for, the, for, for your worldview, for your psychological and spiritual health, 
and for the psychological and spiritual health of the society. If we have more and more people of that kind, we are in a wrong, di we, we walk in a wrong direction as the entire society. And that, that is another scary part, you know. And, and just look, you know, the, how, how it is in a society. Yes. It, I was going to say, let's see if the audience has a question, and they do. Building on that same question, we do have communion all the time. So how does that fit in? We're doing what you say we aren't doing. You mean the, the we're taking the blood? You mean, you mean the blood aspect of that? Uh, and body aspect of that? The idea, oh, this is a good one. <laughs> yes, so um, that, that is another surprising thing which I encountered uh, when, when coming to Presbyterians in America or the substantial number of Presbyterians in America, because, you, you, you know, transubstantiation, for instance, that's a doctrine of uh, high medieval Catholicism. <laughs> you, you, you know, like that. Wait, that I, I, don't want, I don't want you to evade this question, I mean, because you do that here, it's a very important part of your service. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you can say, wow, this is shocking that this yeah, is yeah. Done, but you, it's very important to you. It is very important for me, and it is important for different reasons. You, you know, in that respect, I am really Zwinglian or Calvinist, and for Calvinists or Zwinglians, it is, for Zwinglian, it'll be remembering of Jesus and what he did and acting in his spirit. For Calvinist, it will be uh, an experiencing the Jesus' Holy Spirit being present in that community around the table. That is what matters. And for me, if you noticed, I, for instance, love celebrating Holy Communion on Easter Sunday because that is the proper time to celebrate Holy Communion. It's a communion of the resurrected. That is, uh, and when you look at the encounters of disciples with the resurrected Christ, not always, but almost always, they are around the table or they are eating, or they have a fire going on a beach in the Galilee, and they are uh, baking a fish or, you know, grilling the fish, and they are eating it together, or that is the context in which it is. So it is a communal meal which is binding the people together through that. And that is why I have sort of resentment almost of uh, celebrating communion on Maudi Thursday or Good Friday. We do that for an obvious reasons because that is where it originates or where it starts, but then it got tre truly transformed by this post-resurrection 
dimension. And if we do it only as a blood and body of Christ in that sense, like, you know, it's almost a magical thingy which, you know, is transforming you from within or I don't know even how, you know, then we are missing this dimension of, of our faith which is transformative and important. And uh, that, that, that's where I feel like a little uneasy. And, and again, you know, I, I think, you know, where is it coming from in people? Aren't you Protestants? <laughs> Kind of, uh, almost. You, you know, I don't mean it badly. You know, I, I take it seriously, that, that question. But uh, uh, when, 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 when I moved first to upstate New York and met with some of the Methodists, for instance, there, and, and so on, it, it was eye-opener for me because I felt, hmm, now I have like a perspective how probably religion was lived 300 years ago. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, and, and at the same time, it was almost my, like a calling for me. Uh, and, and I think that it is a calling for us, only like we need to get our uh, united spirit together. It's a calling for us to liberate those people from those shackles of that fear and, and these kind of magical thinking and so on, because there is so much joy and liberty in, in true Christian faith when we liberate it from these shackles of, uh, you, you know, vindictive religion, for instance, or, or this kind of magical thinking uh, religion, and, and, and so on and so forth. Let's get through a couple more. We don't want to be here all night, but this is, I'm finding this very interesting. I hope everyone else is. Another question from Susan is, what is more hard to believe? The existence of God or the infinite time and space for evolution? Uh, I don't know. We've got to start the timer on this one. We, we definitely have, we're we're going to start the timer on every question until the end of this because we really got to get through this. Yeah, I, 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 I really don't know. Okay, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that it, it, it depends on a person's personal uh, disposition. How about you? How about you answer that? I, I'm not asking that kind of question myself. I, told, I asked you to answer every question. Yes, yeah, yeah. And I think so, you should answer uh, this How question. about me? <laughs> for, 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 for me, it is more interesting, say, or the, what is harder to believe is the question. I, I am, I'm stumped now. I, okay. I, I, I have no answer here. You know. Both are hard? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, You seem, it's an anonymous question, you seem to have a bias toward and against certain gospels based, it seems, on when and how they may have been written. Almost, what, can one say you have, almost like fundamentalists, a pick and choose attitude or approach 
toward which parts of the gospel you give more credence? If so, how do you justify that? If not, why does it seem so? Start the timer. Um, I, uh, I tr the, the, there are several layers. I, I think that I'll need a little bit of more time. But well, let's we'll use the say. first two minutes first, and then we'll yeah, decide yeah. So, that at the end uh, as a group. <laughs> uh, historically now, you know, starting historically, uh, I, I, I feel being a follower of Jesus. And being follower of Jesus, uh, I, I, I want to know as much and as closely uh, his teaching, his personality, his, his ministry, his spirit. And there are some uh, sources which are clearly closer to his teaching, and there are others which are uh, more distant. We touched upon it with Apostle Paul and the women in the congregation. You know, there are things which are genuinely Pauline and there are things which are later. And those were probably added there by his disciples also, or for, uh, um, like his uh, students or followers of Paul. And in a similar way, it is with, with Jesus. Uh, so for me, it is really the trying to reach where it, where it goes, as deep as I can get, as close to Jesus as I can get. That's one thing. Then there is another dimension which I would probably need another two minutes to describe, uh, and that is... Should we give that to him? Everybody's saying yes. Yeah, uh, and that is that, uh, of course, the, using the image of... Uh, using the metaphor of my late teacher of New Testament from Prague, uh, Peter Pokorny, he said, in the end, we don't see Jesus directly. We see Jesus as he mirrors on the uh, eyes of his disciples. So I recognize that there is, that we know Jesus or we know divine activity with them or with us only through testimonies. But, you know, I, I feel like I have all rights like anyone else to pick and decide what I consider to be more genuine or closer to, more talking to me or talking to the situation in which we are. It might be because I took some of the uh, points against, say, Gospel of John. Gospel of John is interesting. It's a deeply reflective and meditative piece of literature. It does not tell us much about Jesus himself. It tells us more about Jesus' reflection in the end of the first and the beginning of the second century. So that'll be my answer to this. And that's and, why it's interesting uh, to you. Yeah. And, and that it, it, it is interesting, but don't take it as Jesus's teaching. It's not Jesus's teaching. It is a reflection of that 
already third or fourth generations of Christians are processing that within the context of their faith, now slowly growing through the Mediterranean basin. Does anybody in the audience have a final question before I ask my final question tonight to, from these cards? No one? Okay. Uh, I want an answer to this. Okay, mm -hmm. please. Um, this is an anonymous question. This question kept me up at night as a seven-year-old Christian. How can God always was. I'm not disputing it. I'm, I have no issues with that. I, I, I just... The, the question is, how, how can God, God always was? Yeah, yeah, I, I heard that. Yeah. <laughs> He's not answering. Yeah, how can uh, that's not for me to to, to 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 have any opinion about it? Are we okay with that answer, everyone? You agree? <laughs> we have an agreement. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 you know, you know, like I, I the, the, how? like 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 people have the, the, these kind of if if I translate that into an. Um, scientific uh, dimension, okay? Yes. So let us take it now from the... Start the time. Uh, from the theological to an scientific uh, discourse, okay? Uh, among, um, uh, among astronomers, you, you know, you can tell if someone is an amateurish astronomer that they are spending enormous time uh, the, thinking, what was there before the Big Bang? No answer. Why? You know, interesting, yeah, but th th there is not, no way for us to know, and so at this moment, uh, unless perhaps someone comes up with some genius idea or whatever, I, I have no answer. And in a similar way, you know, how could God always was, or whatever was exact wording of that, I, I'm not solving it. And this doesn't keep you up at night? It, it is not keeping me up in night, at night, no, no. Thank you so much for joining us for this special podcast episode. Go and listen to the other 99 episodes of this podcast at <laughs> everyone's laughing. So this was the last question, you mean? Yes. A completely last question. Yes. Let us work We're... on it then a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> People are putting on their jackets. This is, uh, we have, and I'm, I'm being serious now, we have a wonderful library of this man's uh, and yours teachings. questions. And well, I, I'm a, I'm a lay, I'm a lay person. I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I'm questioning you. I'm just, I'm a sponge. I'm the sponge of the group. And but I really encourage you, if you've got anything, gotten anything out of tonight, to go and listen to this podcast. And it, it's on SoundCloud and 
Apple Podcasts, just type in Religio Sanity. It'll get you right there. And, and you could also, and, we have and a video U- series on, on YouTube. You're already on the YouTube channel. Go to something you might not know about the Bible. Uh, again, another great resource that and, we have from you. And, Thank you for this. And, and when you listen, you can now see us because these are the chairs in which these, we are sitting. That's right. Not in the sanctuary. We are in Upstairs, the library. Yeah, but this table is there. <laughs> this uh, is how we do it. And yeah. it's, it's been a joy to me. I really no, no, want to know you. that. Thank you for your diligence. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.